Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Little, and I uh, thank all of you for coming uh, and welcome you. Um, very important topic uh, for our society and for each of us because uh, we're all patients um, in our lives and we all will face the end of our life. And uh, these questions are ones that uh, none of us can escape from uh, considering. And just quickly say I have no financial conflicts of interest uh, to uh, disclose and my comments are solely my own and do not necessarily represent the views of Mayo Clinic. My objectives for our time together this evening will be to review professional statements and issues of law on physician-assisted death, um, uh, I think more accurately uh, named medical killing, uh, to consider the major arguments for and against medical killing, and to weigh the implications of narratives and empirical data uh, in regards to these different arguments. My goals are not to provide a debate between the arguments, uh, but rather I am uh, wanting to point out um, the data that we have available to help us evaluate the different uh, arguments. I'm going to begin with clarification of some definitions. Um, and why do I do that? Uh, it's because Unfortunately, in our society right now, the abuse of language, uh, the misuse of language is rampant, um, as is just illustrated by um, a letter to the editor to the Washington Post uh, this very week. Uh, right now, uh, D.C. has before its leadership an assisted suicide bill that is being considered. And um, as the Post reported on it, they called it uh, uh, an assisted suicide um, uh, proposal. One reader uh, wrote back saying, the October 5 Metro article previewing the vote on the bill referred to medical aid in dying for the terminally ill as physician-assisted suicide. Suicide, in my view, is when a healthy person willfully takes his or her life. When someone is terminally ill, has exhausted all medical options, and has only a few months left to live, it is the disease that is killing the patient. Medical aid prescribed by a physician and self-administered gives the dying patient a choice to die peacefully with loved ones nearby. To call this option suicide is to align with those who try to impose their religious dictums on others rather than showing respect for someone else's choice. Now, we could do a whole seminar on everything that is wrong with this statement, both factually and logically, but I'm just going to point out a few things. First of all, healthy people don't commit suicide. Um, that's basically just not something that comes together in the same concept or reality. Uh, they may not necessarily have physical ailments, but they certainly will have spiritual or emotional disease. Factually, a lethal overdose is indeed the proximate and real cause of death, uh, not an underlying pathophysiology. Uh, to want to disguise the reality of the actions that are taking place is verbal legerdemain uh, in laws such as the state of Washington's, Canada's new law 
proposed law that was before my state of Minnesota earlier this year who wished to turn physicians and all of us into liars. Um, in terms of the statement to impose their religious dictums, religion has nothing to do with this. Uh, and it is a relatively bigoted attack on people of faith, which is not justifiable or helpful to the conversation at large. And lastly, I want to say that uh, our calling it what it is, is to use words meaningfully. Um, and <clears throat> wanting to engage in an honest conversation rather than hiding behind euphemism. And then the last statement that I feel I must address here is, I think we owe respect to everyone as a person, as a human being, a unity of mind, body, and spirit, who is much more than merely a choice. Um, so, to address the concern, we will indeed clarify that suicide, by the dictionary, is an action of killing oneself intentionally. And that's what we are talking about here. Now, to specify that a bit further, euthanasia are those acts which are the intentional direct act of ending a life by administering a lethal dosage or combination of medications, substances, or device intervention with the sole purpose of causing death, that is, killing. Um, assisted suicide are those acts of assisting a person in the taking of his or her own life by providing information, a prescription, or a device which the person uses him or herself. The difference between these two is actually who is the final actor in the act of killing. In euthanasia, it is a physician, a nurse, or some other individual who administers the terminal intervention. In assisted suicide, at least ostensibly, it is the patient, him or herself, who engages in the final act of uh, killing. Now, I want to clarify that there's another category of action out there um, which raises its own um, ethical questions but is important for us to acknowledge, and that is something called terminal sedation, which is also known as sedation to unconsciousness. And this is the use of sedation to bring a patient to the point of being unconscious, like um, a, a sedative anesthesia, who is suffering from refractory pain that is uncontrollable by other means short of taking them out of a conscious state. That as long as they're remaining conscious, our medications are not sufficient to eliminate their pain. And so in order to take them to where they're no longer experiencing that or suffering, we make them unconscious. Now the question is, is this a form of gradual euthanasia? Um, the argument in the palliative care community at this point is that we acknowledge that when a patient is unconscious, unless they are being artificially nourished and hydrated, that they will die somewhere in the range of typically four to seven days. And so this will shorten the patient's life. But it is distinguished from assisted suicide and euthanasia in that the intent in engaging in terminal sedation is to try to eliminate the pain or the experience of pain by the patient. We're not deliberately wanting to end their life. And so it comes down to the difference of intent 
um, and proximate cause of, of death that is the issue. Now, there are a lot of other terms that are out there, physician aid in dying, physician-assisted death, medical aid in dying, dignity in dying. All of these are essentially euphemistic synonyms for euthanasia and assisted suicide that are being deliberately used to obscure the reality that these are deliberate acts of direct and facilitated medical killing. Now, as we begin a conversation on euthanasia, we almost always start with the Hippocratic Oath in terms of understanding the medical profession's role in uh, deliberately taking the life of a patient. And so one of the classic statements from the Oath of Hippocrates is this, I will use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury or wrongdoing. Neither will I administer a poison to anyone when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. Now, I want to make just a, a couple of statements. I hope this isn't seen too much as a digression. But this was an extraordinarily radical change in uh, medical practice at the time. Um, when the small cadre of individuals who became known as the Hippocratic um, uh, group, one did not know when one employed a physician uh, what they were going to do. They may have been hired for a higher price by someone else who had asked them to do a lethal overdose of medication to serve it as an assassin. Uh, there was no such thing as the protection of confidentiality or a lot of the other things that we expect of physicians today. And what Hippocrates and his students realized was that patients, particularly in their vulnerability, needed to be able to depend upon ostensible healers to come and to help them and not to harm them. And so that's why they created the oath. They took a public profession. They promised to their prospective patients, when I come to see you, you can expect I will do this, but I will not do these things. They drew these boundaries. And this has served medicine and patients well for 2,400 years. It's what has enabled medicine to achieve the standing that it does um, and allows people to feel comfortable going to see their physician because they know that there's this boundary that a physician, a professional, one who has taken that promise, will not do. And we're asking now that this be completely changed. So have to set up that context that this is a very radical social experiment that we're being asked to buy in. Now, organizations such as the American Medical Association have continued to adhere to this. They state in their code of ethics that physician-assisted suicide is fundamentally incompatible with the physician's role as healer, would be difficult or impossible to control, and would pose serious societal risks. And their statement on euthanasia is very similar. The American College of Physicians and the American Society of Internal Medicine have for years made the statement that we will not support the legislation of assisted suicide. Unfortunately, there are a number of prominent medical societies, the Minnesota Medical Association for one, the American Academy of Neurology, that are in the process of trying to move to a position of quote-unquote studied neutrality. 
which is basically saying, well, we agree with it, but we're not going to formally agree with it. Um, because if we're going to be neutral, we at least accept that this is potentially reasonable or acceptable behavior. And yet they don't want to have the courage to say so. The World Medical Association continues to maintain strong condemnation, claiming that both euthanasia and assisted suicide are unethical. Um, and even in the Netherlands, who we're going to talk about uh, quite a bit, in their formal literature regarding their own program of medical killing, euthanasia is not part of the doctor's duty of care. In the last several decades, however, there has been a rising movement um, to, um, to have physicians cross that boundary and engage in the deliberate killing of their patients. Um, many of you are too young to remember when uh, Derek Humphrey's final exit was published, but it was a uh, rather uh, significant success, making the New York Times bestseller list. Um, we had the um, rampage, if you will, of Jack Kevorkian, as he took um, close to 200 lives uh, by his um, assisted suicide and uh, many times active euthanasia policies. Several countries have been um, approving these activities. Australia has dealt with this for 20 years. Currently, um, these acts are illegal, but the issue is back yet again before their parliament in a very contentious debate. Switzerland, since 1942, has had a liberal law concerning assisted suicide. There have been numerous organizations, probably the one most well-known here in the West is one called Dignitas. Um, and this has created essentially um, something called suicide tourism. Someone can fly into Zurich, meet a member of Dignitas, and usually within 24 hours, they're dead. Um, there was recent movement to try to get away from this image of suicide tourism by saying there had to be a residential requirement um, in Switzerland for at least six months, but that has been rejected by their leadership. Luxembourg uh, legalized euthanasia in 2008 uh, after the Netherlands and Belgium uh, got involved, so the whole Benelux uh, group is now performing euthanasia. Belgium legalized the activity in 2002. They've had a relatively brisk business since day one, um, and this year they authorized the killing of children by euthanasia. Colombia's Supreme Court in 2002 ruled that no person could be held criminally responsible for taking the life of a terminally ill patient. And uh, just last year, they finally came up with specific rules and guidelines concerning ostensible voluntary euthanasia. Last year, uh, the issue was debated before Parliament but rejected. The biggest local news um, between uh, California approving uh, assisted suicide last year and going active this year has been that Canada has now joined um, the small cadre of nations that legally um, approve assisted suicide in euthanasia. This began uh, with a court decision 
Carter versus Canada, in which the Canadian Supreme Court uh, basically stated that laws against assisted suicide and euthanasia uh, violated the basic um, uh, covenant uh, of the Canadian uh, legal system. First to respond to that um, uh, was the province of Quebec, which uh, passed Bill 52 or B52, um, which was an act respecting, they call it end-of-life care. Uh, Again, not what it is, which is um, euthanasia and assisted suicide. And um, C14 is the totality of the Canadian Parliament's um, law um, decriminalizing and providing the the guidelines for uh, conducting these acts, um, which has just been operational for a few months. In the United States, even before Oregon became the first state to legalize assisted suicide, these activities have been happening. Um, in 1998, in a survey that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, 1,900 physicians were surveyed. 11% said that they would perform assisted suicide and 7% euthanasia in the context of remaining illegal. Once legalized, the percentage of, of um, individuals who affirmatively said they would engage in these acts increased dramatically. Ask whether they had already assisted in suicide or given a lethal injection, 18.3% uh, said that they had had requests, 11% had had requests for um, euthanasia, and of those, uh, 16% uh, had written a lethal prescription and close to 5% had uh, committed acts of euthanasia. Overall, 6% had complied with the request for medical killing. The surveys conducted by Gallup and others over the years have shown a growing interest in the American population to uh, having assisted suicide available. I do want to point out, however, that for most of these surveys, the questioning is quite inadequate because they usually present this specific scenario. If a disease cannot be cured, and if the person is living in severe pain, which cannot be treated by their physicians, would you or uh, would you not allow law to assist the patient to commit suicide? And in that context, the majority of people have said yes. What they don't ask in most of these surveys are the much more likely situations where patients aren't necessarily in intractable pain, Uh, which, thanks to the advancements in palliative care, is a very, very rare uh, minority of patients um, these days, but individuals who have mental illness, or as in the Netherlands, are just tired of living. Uh, The only group to pull to that extent has been the Pew organization, and I don't know if you can read them, but essentially... You go from significant suffering and great pain, where 62% said yes, down to is an extremely heavy burden on his or her family or is ready to die and living has become a burden. Now it's a small minority, but we never hear that based upon the context. I'm just going to take a moment because we could talk about the history of how 
the Oregon Death with Dignity Act went from its first passing by public referendum in 1994 to finally going online uh, in 1998 and then surviving a Supreme Court challenge. Um, but needless to say, it was the first uh, state in the country to um, legalize assisted suicide, followed by Washington, uh, Vermont, and now California. Montana also allows assisted suicide, but this was not due to a referendum or a passage of their um, legislature, but due to uh, an act of their Supreme Court. Um, since Oregon's program went online, there has been a steady increase in individuals receiving um, prescriptions for the lethal overdose uh, and the number of people taking their life. Now, I want to point out that these uh, statistics that we have are likely far short of what actually has been taking place. And the reason for that is that uh, the Oregon Department of Health Services is not authorized by law, nor are they are provided any budget to actually investigate what's actually taking place. They're entirely dependent upon the practicing physicians submitting a report. And we know that a significant percentage of physicians are not complying with that reporting requirement. Uh, so in truth, we actually have no clue as to what's taking place uh, under, uh, under the law. Um, and it's the same in Washington and the other states where the reporting requirements are either not complied with or are very nebulous. Um, currently, there are many states in the union that are actively considering assisted suicide legislation. California now has gone into um, the states that actually have authorized this. Um, but uh, we can see that this is an important issue across our country. In regards to the legal parameters, the Supreme Court has said that there is no constitutional right to assisted suicide, but there is no constitutional prohibition either. And they have left this up to the laboratory of the states. Um, and we'll return to the cases where they articulated this um, a few slides down the road. Now, one, of course, asked the question, why is there's this huge interest, this um, desire for people to have access to this form of medical killing? And when we generate these lists, the issue of fear of pain and suffering is usually the first thing that comes to people's mind, followed by loss of control or claims of autonomy, fear of being a burden to loved ones, fear of being you know, plugged into the medical juggernaut and being hooked up to machines and not being able to extract oneself from that situation. And then there's just a fear of abandonment, you know, that in terminal illness, people would draw. Friends don't visit anymore. Families stay away. And there is a sense of being abandoned. Um, at least in the United States, Pain, fear of pain and suffering is actually way down on the list because patients aren't experiencing intractable pain for the most part. In Oregon, it's very clear that the, the driving force behind their interest in this is the thought of losing autonomy. As a very fiercely independent people, this is the greatest fear 
that they have. Um, now, I'm going to just make a comment about the bottom line, that at present, they say financial implications of treatment is the least of their concerns. As we'll talk about near the end, that is about to change, and change substantially. Um, now, as we go forth into examining the arguments for and con, uh, for and, and con uh, medical killing, I want to share with you the requirements in Oregon and in the Netherlands initi- that existed initially to sort of set things up. Um, in Oregon, the original rule said that the patient was to be terminally ill, which meant a projected uh, survival of less than six months. They had to be an adult. They had to have decision-making capacity. We're going to talk about that. I don't know if that term means a lot. The legal term is competence. In other words, the, the, the law, the courts have deemed that an individual is capable of managing their own affairs. And so uh, we all are presumed to have uh, competence until the court decides otherwise. The medical equivalent of that is decision-making capacity. It's basically the criteria that physicians have to use all the time to determine that a patient is able to understand the information we share with them about their disease, their prognosis, what the treatments we're proposing may entail in terms of risks, uh, the goals, the side effects, and those sorts of issues. Is the patient able to process that information? Are they able to make a decision which is not coerced by some other form of mental illness, such as depression or psychosis? And are they able to communicate a consistent message back to the healthcare team? Uh, these are all aspects of decision-making capacity, and it's very crucial. If we're going to take someone's life, we need to make sure that they really understand and know what it is they're requesting, um, and that they're doing so without coercion. They also required Oregon residency, which was, again, a six-month period of time. There had to be two oral and one written requests that there was a necessary second opinion from another physician to verify this other information, a 15-day wait period uh, before the prescription could be written, and then reporting requirements. The safeguards that were put in place were that if a patient was perceived to be depressed, that they would undergo counseling, and yet to date only about 4% of all the requestees ever are referred for counseling or psychiatric analysis. The patient is encouraged to notify the next of kin. The patient is informed they may rescind their request at any time. Again, the second opinion is supposed to be a safeguard. They have tried to draw a line between assisted suicide and euthanasia. Um, and we'll talk about how that's an illusory line in practical terms and then the reporting mechanism. In Holland, back when this started four decades ago, um, euthanasia and assisted suicide were still considered formally illegal on their statutes. But they passed the law that said that if certain criteria were fulfilled, that the physicians would not be prosecuted. And those requirements were that the patient be acting voluntarily, that the re- request must be seriously considered and enduring, 
The patient must be adequately informed of his or her medical condition, prognosis, and the treatment alternatives. And because the most important thing for the Dutch was respect for patient autonomy, that's why they wanted these permissions to occur, that the patient's suffering must be intolerable in the patient's view and irreversible, and that there is no reasonable alternative acceptable to the patient to relieve the suffering. So those are the baseline criteria we're beginning with. So now let's start to examine the different arguments. And one of the strongest argument for um, medical killing is the autonomy argument. The claim essentially that each of us as owners of our lives should have the right, the freedom, to determine the time and circumstances of our demise. Um, and so you see this idea, this language in the organizations which are promoting and facilitating medical killing. Um, End of Life Washington says, your life, your death, your choice. Uh, Compassion and Choices, which was the Hemlock Society, has you know, changed their name to um, all these good apple pie things. You know, we're compassionate, we're giving you choice, and so on. Uh, and Compassion in Dine, which is supporting, again, your choices. The recent case of Brittany Maynard uh, that became uh, quite a cause celeb um, a year or so ago, um, Ms. Maynard, um, at the age of 29, had an incurable brain tumor called glioblastoma multiforme. Um, and so she and her family moved to Oregon. Um, so that she could ultimately receive the prescription for a lethal overdose, which she took, um, as sort of, again, this expression of I should have control over my death. So let's examine that. Let's break down this claim of autonomy. Well, we know the words come from the Greek, autos, self, and nomes, rule, self-rule. Um, in biomedical ethics, we use it in the term of uh, understanding that patients are independent moral agents, they have their own worldview, their values and goals uh, regarding health care, and that we as healthcare professionals should engage the patient as partner, learn those, and respect them. Um, that's how it's supposed to be used. Now, for autonomy to mean anything, there have to be two requirements. First of all, there has to be giving of the liberty for the individual to make the choice and to act on it. And then there is this idea of, again, decision-making capacity, which we would call agency. Now, the physician-patient relationship is not a tyranny of one side over the other. It should not be. Admittedly, there is an inequality in the relationship based upon the vulnerability of the patient and the skills and knowledge that the physician or other healthcare professional brings, but we're both independent moral agents, and one isn't necessarily the dictator over the other. And so if we want to just step aside from this whole idea of medical killing, we understand that there are things that physicians refuse, regardless of how much a patient wants them. We don't have sex with our patients, no matter how much a patient may think that that's important or necessary. We don't breach confidentiality about another patient because the patient wants it, even if they're relatives. Um, we are given the power of prescription of controlled substances 
because we are professionally responsible for saying no to things that some patients may very much want, such as narcotics or stimulants or all sorts of other things that they may desire. But we should say no. We don't mutilate a patient just because they want to. If a patient comes in with a disorder that I can't pronounce, but they say, my arm is not me, I want it cut off, well, we don't just turn around and cut it off. Um, in each of these situations, the patient's claim to autonomy has no bearing. Um, and so the question is, is having another individual be asked to be a killer when that individual went into their profession many times saying, no, that's one of the things that I don't do. Is that a right of a patient to claim? Um, so if the question is one of a patient ending his or her own life, we have to acknowledge that there are many means that do not require another person. And a physician is not necessary to this. Now, the compassion claim is, of course, but if a physician can do it, then the patient doesn't have to die a grisly or you know, messy death or you know, asphyxiating themselves in their garage or things of that nature where the family will find them. Um, we, we want to sort of medicalize, we want to sterilize this. But to be truthful, if autonomy is self-rule, an individual does not require the medicalization of death in order to accomplish their end. Um, the other thing that's very interesting about this is that if, again, we're claiming self-rule, then why do we go to a physician in the first place? Because to engage another person in the act depends upon that other person's judgment, their agreement, their permission, which sort of cuts into the whole idea of self-rule. Um, and then again, there's this issue of capacity. And so let's, let's talk about that. So Max Chachanoff in the Winnipeg group did a, one of many studies, this is one of his earliest, looking at 200 terminally ill patients, of which about half of them um, wished for uh, death. 8.5% had a pervasive desire to die. And that desire correlated very closely with properly treated pain, low family support, and most significantly, the presence of depression. 60% with such a desire to die were clinically uh, depressed, as opposed to only 7.7% of those without such a desire. When the depression was appropriately treated, or even just with the passage of, of time, two-thirds of those in a follow-up interview in two weeks no longer had the desire to die. Um, so, is capacity an important issue? Absolutely, it's an important issue. But somewhat staggering was the admission of the psychiatric community in Oregon that 95% of their psychiatrists, the ones who should most be able to determine the presence of a coercive uh, psychiatric disorder, did not feel confident that they could 
determine a sufficiently impaired judgment in just one consultation. And half of them were not at all confident. And yet all Oregon Medicaid will cover is one visit with a psychiatrist. We all know that the rest of us who are not psychiatrists are notoriously poor at diagnosing and recognizing depression in patients. If we go across the puddle to the Netherlands, um, in a recent study uh, in which now euthanized patients are killed for psychiatric disorders, not using it as a, um, uh, a mitigating uh, finding. It's difficult, I'm sorry, to read this, but when you look at the list of the disorders, psychosis, neurocognitive impairment, severe autism, people who wouldn't be uh, oftentimes deemed of having legal competency to care for their own financial affairs were having their lives taken um, at their request or the request of someone else. In Belgium, not wanting to stay behind their race with the Netherlands, they now have authorized uh, uh, euthanizing a healthy woman, 24, who had not suicidal attempts, just suicidal thoughts. So instead of treating psychiatric disease, let's just get rid of it. Um, coming back to Oregon, one of the very first cases after their program went online involved an elderly woman named Kate Cheney. She was an 85-year-old with progressive dementia, declared mentally incapable to request assisted suicide by her primary physician and a psychiatrist, they had noted that she appeared pressured by her daughter. The psychiatrist observed that the assisted suicide request was entirely the daughter's agenda, but not to be thwarted in the desire to see mom's life ended, the daughter went doctor shopping. And a second psychiatrist observed the choices of the patient may be influenced by her family's wishes and the, doctor was, and the daughter was somewhat coercive. So to show the best that we have in American health care in terms of medical decision-making, finally the patient's Kaiser managed care administrator, not a physician, decided that Ms. Cheney was a candidate for assisted suicide who then uh, hunted up a physician who would write the prescription. So much for safeguards. Um, then there is this experience in the Netherlands data that has been observed since the early 90s of something called life terminating acts without explicit request of the patient or shortened to Lauer. And um, over the years, depending upon how the data is collected, because again, compliance with their reporting mechanism has been extraordinarily poor, anywhere from 0.8% to the best data of point. Uh, or 0.4%, somewhere between 1 in 200 and 1 in 125 deaths in the Netherlands are due to someone taking the life of the patient without the patient requesting it. If we want to examine this further, 41% of the time there was no knowledge of the patient's wishes. In 30%, there was no consultation with the colleague. In 83% of the time, the decision was at least discussed with a family member, 
But what does that lead us to conclude? That 17% of the time, it was the autonomous choice of the physician that the patient's life should end. Looking at other Lauer data, uh, Hank Jakobsen from the Netherlands and John Cowan um, from England and then Georgetown University uh, looked at the larger phenomenon here. That Lauer at that point was 0.7% of cases, but um, they also had intentional overdoses which were not considered in that category. Um, and that accounted for another 1.5% of all deaths. And then the deliberate withholding and withdrawing of life-sustaining treatment without an explicit request of the patient uh, accounted for 10% of their deaths. 15% of the time, no discussion took place but could have. 50% of the patients were fully competent or capable and a discussion had at one time taken place, but the patient never requested termination. In 17%, treatment alternatives were thought to still be available to the attending physician, and in the cases of analgesic overdose, only 36% of the time had there been a request for a shortening of the life. In a more recent population-based survey from the Netherlands, um, looking at taking the life of patients without explicit request, 70% of the time, it was due to the fact that the patient was comatose. In 21% of the time, the patient had dementia. Neither of them are situations for which decision-making capacity is present. Um, then, I love this one, 17% of the time, the decision was clearly in the patient's best interest. And in 8.2%, they said the discussion would have been harmful to the patient. So we don't want to upset them. We'll just kill them. Okay. Um, and again, 80% of them were discussed with a family member. 15% um, or 14% of the other 20%, they talked with colleagues. But in 6.5% of the cases, the physician just acted alone and decided to take the life of the patient. Now let's look at the flip side of this respect for autonomy. Um, remember, one of the uh, rules was that the suffering was no longer acceptable in the view of the patient. What happens is that not all requests are met uh, affirmatively, that there are denials. But interestingly, 35% of the physicians rejected the request because in the physician's opinion, the patient's suffering was not intolerable. Now, I'm glad some had the, the wherewithal to say no, but again, if the whole thing here is patient self-rule, we're not really made a lot of progress. And I do want to make this observation from a Christian perspective about this whole claim of self-rule, and I refer to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We don't have a rightful claim to autonomy uh, to end our lives. Dutch philosopher Hank Ten Havi summed up um, what I've shared with you here. 35 years ago, the euthanasia movement started as a type of protest against medical power. 
the original impetus for euthanasia then was individual choice and personal autonomy over their own dying. The irony of the euthanasia debate is that this protest against medical power has only served to increase medical power. And this is true because the ultimate arbiter for euthanasia is not the patient, but the physician. Another argument in support of um, uh, medical killing is called the equivalence argument. And, and basically it's this. We have, for the last several decades, clearly established a right for patients to refuse any and all forms of life-sustaining treatment. You can say no. And that's based upon fundamental principles of personal or bodily integrity. If nothing else, I should be able to say, do not touch me, and have that respected. Um, and, and so the courts have said, when they uh, acted in the Cruzan decision and other similar decisions, that the goal here was the ability for people to just simply say, leave me alone or to express that through an advanced directive or through uh, a surrogates. Nancy Gibbs, in an editorial in Time, um, summed it up, I think, pretty nicely when she said, yet a seemingly inexorable logic enters the picture once it is acceptable to stand by and allow a patient to die slowly by refusing life-sustaining treatment. Why is it not more merciful to end life swiftly by lethal injection? Well, to address this, we have to step back and, again, think about our terminology. We in the United States are very much rights-oriented people. We like to claim rights to all sorts of things. But we have to remember that there are two types of rights that we can assert. There are negative rights and positive rights. Negative rights impose a duty of non-interference on others. It's this idea of non-touching. And if you violate those negative rights. You are guilty of a crime, a prosecutable crime called battery. But positive rights are something altogether different. They are imposing duties of assistance on others. In other words, if I say I have a right to this and it requires you to do things to me, that's asserting a different type of a contention and is much harder necessarily to justify. In healthcare, we're very clear about this negative right business. You know that patients have the right to say no, do not touch me. But positive rights are very different because again, why have we set up this system in which people have to go through training and are given licenses and so on in order to provide medical care? It is just because, otherwise, why wouldn't we just set it up that you could go into Walmart and get any drug you wanted and go in and have a technician, not a physician, but a technician say, you know, I'm just feeling like I want the gallbladder out today. Let's, you know, go ahead and do a laparoscopy. We don't have that system. And to assert positive rights certainly suggests that that's what we should have, at least in terms of medical killing. But the Supreme Court was very clear on this in two cases from 1997, Bacco v. Quill and uh, the Glucksburg decision from the state of Washington. And Chief Justice Rehnquist for the, for the court rejected the equivalence argument, uh, which was invoking an equal protection 
uh, clause or 14th Amendment um, case saying that patients who had life support to refuse had an unfair opportunity to end their life than those not requiring life support. And he wrote, the distinction comports with fundamental legal principles of causation and intent. First, when a patient refuses life-sustaining medical treatment, he dies from an underlying fatal disease or pathology. But if a patient ingests lethal medication prescribed by a physician, he is killed by that medication. In Cruzan, our assumption of a right to refuse treatment was grounded not on the proposition that patients have a right to hasten death, but on well-established traditional rights to bodily integrity and freedom from unwanted touching. And so you can see that as a society, we have authorized the withholding or withdrawing of life-sustaining treatment, but have typically um, continued to condemn assisted death um, uh, in the form of suicide or euthanasia. And again, what is the final actor in the cause of the death? In the one, it is the underlying disease. In the other, it is the foreign substance, which would not be part of the equation unless someone were directly to put that into the, the person. Now, terminal sedation still causes a lot of significant concern for people uh, because, you know, could that not be a proximate cause of death? But here the determination is based upon, again, what is the intent? Is the intent to terminate the life or is it to relieve symptoms? And that's why the palliative care groups have typically supported terminal sedation. A third commonly invoked uh, argument is the compassion argument. Shouldn't we be moved by compassion to engage in helping people uh, alleviate their suffering? I'm not going to argue with that statement. But there is nothing about a claim of compassion which dictates how one responds in a compassionate fashion to wanting to alleviate other people's uh, suffering. And, unfortunately, even though we want to clean up and medicalize dying um, by assisted suicide and euthanasia, it doesn't always work out that way. There was a case from Oregon from 1999. Um, this was one of those cases that didn't get reported in the annual survey. And it was talking about a man that after he took the lethal dose, he began to have some physical symptoms. Uh, often this is severe nausea, vomiting, and other issues. And basically the wife couldn't stand to watch this, so she called 9-11. And the guy uh, ended up being taken uh, to the local hospital. He was revived, taken to a local nursing facility. I don't know if he went back home but he died shortly after that. So here is a man who thought he was going to have an easy end of his life. He ends up going through this stuff. He ends up being taken and put back in the medical system that he probably was trying to avoid because he wanted to die at home. And we don't even know if he was able to accomplish that. Another case of David Pruitt took the prescribed lethal dose in the presence of his family and members of Compassion and Choices. After being unconscious for 65 hours, he awoke. 
and he was significantly unnerved by the experience. He did die peacefully and naturally two weeks later. Um, And again, this is a case that did not end up getting reported. The Dutch, being more methodical about this, have actually examined the incidence of what they describe as problems of completion um, in assisted suicide and euthanasia. In assisted suicide, 7% experience complications, 16% experience problems with completion, which was meaning prolonged death, failure to enter coma, or awakening later. Those are pretty high percentages, if you ask me for what's sold as a quick and easy way to die. 535 cases of euthanasia, 3% experience complications, and even 6% experience problems with completion, which usually was an issue of prolonged dying. Um, So, you know, trying to avoid the agony to family, to end it quickly and cleanly, and the vigil goes on for day after day after day. The really tragic uh, scenario involved uh, a case with Dignitas in which a woman, 69 years old, flew in um, claiming that she had terminal liver cirrhosis and was given a lethal injection. Her autopsy, however, showed that she had no pathology at all. And to compound the tragedy, the physician that gave her the lethal injection committed suicide when he found this out. So we lost two lives in the process. My mentor, Edmund Pellegrino, summed it up this way. He said, compassion is a virtue, not a principle. Morally weighty as it is, compassion can become maleficent unless it is contained by principle. The first argument against legalizing medical killing is the professional integrity argument. And this goes back to what we started with, with the understanding that for almost 2,400 years, physicians did not kill. This was articulated, most interestingly, not from a particularly conservative individual and not someone who was a friend at all of Christianity, Margaret Mead, who said throughout the primitive world, he who had the power to cure would necessarily be able to kill. Depending upon who was paying the bill, the doctor or which doctor could try to relieve pain or send the patient to another world. Then came a profound change in the consciousness of the medical profession, made both literal and symbolic in the Hippocratic Oath. For the first time in our tradition, there was a complete separation between killing and curing. With the Greeks, the distinction was clear. One profession was to be dedicated completely to life under all circumstances, regardless of rank, age, or intellect, the life of the slave, emperor, or defective child. This is a priceless possession which we cannot afford to tarnish. But society is always attempting to make the physician into a killer, to kill the defective child at birth, to leave sleeping pills beside the bed of the cancer patient, but it is the duty of society to protect the physician from such requests. A colleague of mine from the Christian Medical Association, Jonathan Embody, went over to the Netherlands and did a series of interviews a few years back of physicians and surviving um, family members and patients that were considering euthanasia. And he shared with me um, the transcripts of 
the cases, and I'm going to share a couple of them with you, to have you ask how has this practice changed the integrity of the medical profession in Holland. A patient told, or a colleague told of a patient, a case of an old man who might have died any day. His son came to see me and said, my wife and I have booked a holiday and we can't cancel it at this point. So we would like very much to bury father before we leave on holiday. And this doctor went in to see the old man and gave him a huge dose of morphine. And then when he came back later to declare the man dead, the patient was not dead at all. In fact, the patient was very happy because at last he had gotten enough morphine to take care of his pain. Another story Dr. Z will tell you, he is an oncologist and in internal medicine, and he was asked once to see an elderly lady with severe breathing problems. She might die within a fortnight. And he said, we can help you to breathe normally, but I would like to take you to the hospital. And she said, no, I will be euthanized in the hospital. So Dr. Z said, well, I can admit you personally, and then I will be with you, and I will help you. So she agreed to do this. And she went to the hospital and was helped, but he then went off duty. And he went home and was free for the morning. And when he came back in the afternoon, the patient was dead. So we asked what had happened, and the colleague said, well, whether she died now or in a fortnight's time, it would have made no difference. We needed the bed for someone else. So he had her euthanized. In a survey from 1993 of 2,000 seniors on general health issues, and interestingly, in the survey, there was not a single question dealing with the issue of euthanasia. But 10% of the respondents added their concerns because of the Dutch euthanasia law. They were afraid on the basis of AIDS that their lives could be terminated without their request. So we've disenfranchised 10% of the elderly population. Is that what we want our health care system to do? Now, it's very clear that the majority of the Dutch citizens are very enthusiastic about the euthanasia law, but there are those that, similar to the uh, case mentioned, refuse hospitalization or nursing home placement. They refuse to see physicians or take medications because they don't trust what they're being given. And kind of in contrast to our society with its living wills, the Dutch, the Sanctuary Association has produced declarations of the will to live, which the patient carries on a card and says, I do not wish euthanasia. But I'm not sure how well those are being respected. As Canada has now entered into the brave new world of medical killing, Christine Nagel recently wrote, financially, it will become the salvation to our overburdened health care systems. Our government and Supreme Court do not, of course, mention anything about money, but they do warn us that within a few years, seniors will outnumber the rest of the population and will need an army of caregivers to cope with them. That will be costly. Inevitably, euthanasia will become a more socially acceptable way to solve this problem. And her attempt to hedge against this future was that she had herself tattooed, saying, don't euthanize me. In Oregon, the experience of Catherine Judson and her husband is relatively interesting. Uh, she said in a, she took her very ill husband, barely got him to the physician's office, and to my surprise and horror, during the exam, I overheard the doctor 
giving my husband a sales pitch for assisted suicide. Think of what it will spare your wife. We need to think of her, he said as a clincher. And she, in essence, recognized that the physician was pushing uh, assisted suicide on her husband. She said, I was indignant that the doctor was not only trying to decide what was best for David, but also what was supposedly best for me, even though he had never spoken to me at all. So they got a different doctor, and David lived another five years, interestingly. But after that nightmare in the first doctor's office and encounters with the death with dignity inclined nurse, I was afraid to leave my husband alone again with doctors and nurses for fear they'd morph from care providers to enemies with no one around to stop them. Here in the good old U.S. of A. A corollary of the professional integrity argument is one I call the personal integrity argument because there is associated with the euthanasia movement an increased war against conscience and specifically against Christian healthcare providers. Um, Julian Suvalesco from Oxford and Udu uh, Shuklink from Canada um, have asserted that doctors have no right to refuse medical assistance in dying abortion or contraceptions. They join in with Peter Singer and a number of other individuals, so-called progressive bioethicists, to make the same claim. Another legal scholar from Canada, Amir Attaran, has said doctors can't refuse to help a patient die no matter what they say. Um, he announces that any physician who would refuse to kill a patient is a bigot. Um, and though the Carter versus Canada decision clearly articulated a right of conscientious objection to participation, that's not going to stand in the way of this attorney who understands what's best for us all. Schunkelink again has said that um, the very idea that we ought to countenance conscientious objection in any profession is objectionable. Nobody forces anyone to become a professional. It's a voluntary choice. Yes, but because we are a professional, because we're part of a profession, we have made a commitment that says we will not kill people. At least my era did. That doesn't take place as much now, unfortunately. But he doesn't even understand what a professional is. But then he makes this lovely statement. Medicine is a service industry. No, it is not strictly a service industry. We're not McDonald's. We're not Burger King. This isn't have it your way. Um, this, is, this is absolutely insulting. Um, but, you know, the other thing that kind of gets my hackles going a little bit, and I'm sorry that I'm being a little emotional here, but, and there are good philosophers, and then there are people who shoot off their mouth um, inappropriately. Professor Schunklink has no skin in the game. He's not going to be the one doing the lethal overdose or writing the lethal prescription. He has no personal accountability, but he has no trouble taking individuals who have sworn their lives to help other people and not to be perceived as a killer. But no, we have to do that. It's trash. It's absolute trash. And what really breaks my heart is that it would be one thing if it was an isolated 
you know, pundit of some kind. But the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario have joined into this insanity, not so much by forcing physicians to do it, but they want to insist that if you dissent, you must provide an effective referral, which basically means a referral in good faith to a known, non-objecting individual who will provide the service. And they end their statement, for clarity, the college does not consider providing the patient with an effective referral as assisting in providing medical assistance in dying. Well, this is where they do need a good philosopher who can explain to them causality and responsibility and the whole concept of complicity. Because even if I don't provide the lethal injection, but I use my power as a professional to directly refer you to someone who will, that is direct factual complicity in the act. I am just as morally guilty at the end of the day as the individual who did it. But we're going to deny that. And why, of course, do we do that is because we are not necessarily engaged in just making sure that patients are killed, but we will demand compliance. You will think the way we tell you to think. You will act the way we tell you to act. And that's the authoritarian mindset that is becoming part of our supposedly free societies. Then there is the slippery slope argument, which, as any good philosopher will tell you, is one of the most difficult to posit, at least prospectively, because it requires a substantial amount of projection. The idea, of, if you're not familiar with the slippery slope, is that essentially we're starting up here and we decide we're going to relax, perhaps, a certain prohibition of some kind, or we're going to take a first step with the thought that things will just stay like that. But the reality is, is that we take that first step, it will inexorably require a second step. And that second step will require a third step. And before you know it, you slid down the slope and we're engaged in things that nobody really wanted to have happening at the beginning because we thought our safeguards were going to be sufficient to con contain any abuses. Um, so, how has that worked out? Um, is this more than just projection? Well, in Oregon, Patrick Matheny was an unfortunate man with ALS who was too physically disabled to take the lethal prescription himself. And so a relative actively helped him. Uh, this prompted the Attorney General's office to suggest that assistance for persons with disabilities who want to die may be mandated by disability rights law. And this illustrates why a so-called illusory distinction between assisted suicide and euthanasia will not hold, because it is discriminatory against the disabled or individuals who physically cannot engage in that final act, him or herself. Um, <clears throat> there was another case. In 1997, Dr. James Gallant euthanized a 78-year-old woman without her consent after she suffered a stroke. He ordered two painkillers be given every five to ten minutes over four hours and placed a magnet over her pacemaker in an effort to deactivate it. 
and when she still didn't have the respect to die, he ordered a lethal dose of succinylcholine, an anesthetic agent that stops um, people breathing, um, which was administered by a nurse. The medical board suspended his license for 60 days and issued him a fine of $6,000, but despite the fact that this was a clear violation of Oregon statute and was an act of criminal homicide, the county DA refused to prosecute. In the Holland, there have been a number of changes over the years, um, and as of the formal act, which was passed in 2001, which finally legalized these activities, they included children. Uh, age 12 and older were given a right to request. In principle, the parents or guardians would also consent in those age 12 to 15. But in the case of a refusal by one or both of the parents, the request may be accepted if the doctor is convinced that this will mean avoiding serious suffering. So we're going to override the parents. Children under 12 in terminal phase of an incurable illness can request assisted death if agreed to by the parents and the doctor. The Dutch Medical Association has recommended that healthy patients should be allowed to have euthanasia, that suffering without any specific psychological or medical diagnosis should be sufficient grounds for euthanasia. What sort of suffering is that? Well, there have been a number of patients that simply claimed they were tired of life, and they were suffering through living, and they have been euthanized as a consequence of this. Um, and now, in the Netherlands, um, euthanasia can lead to organ donation, even to the point of choosing euthanasia through organ donation. I want to die, I have good organs, take me in, cut them out, and kill me via that mechanism. There was a uh, end-of-life voluntary euthanasia society in the Netherlands who uh, made a call that every patient over the age of 70 would be uh, given a pill uh, that would uh, essentially accomplish assisted suicide or euthanasia. When a few people kind of objected to that, they pulled the table off, or pulled it off the table for a minute, but now they're back just simply saying, but we want to make sure that anyone over the age of 70 that wants it will be given uh, this pill. And similar to that, another group um, has developed what they call the peaceful pill. Um, and so they pull in the restricted agents from China and from the liquid barbiturates from Mexico uh, that are sent directly to the patient. The packages come quickly, usually disguised as a birthday card. In Belgium, we moved quickly from um, euthanasia for adults that were required to be competent and voluntary to um, now teenagers and younger children, including neonates. Um, 17 of 194 neonate deaths in 2005 were by lethal injection. In 2006, the Socialist Party proposed to expand to competent patients under 18 for younger children at the request of parents. And in 2007, 9% of deaths of babies under one year old were by lethal injection. Parents were consulted 84% of the time, and again, 16% of the time, that was just the choice of the physician. 
And from Switzerland comes this recent case of a British art teacher who went there to be euthanized simply because she didn't feel she could cope with the modern world. She said, to be a modern citizen, you have to adapt in all these different ways, and I just don't want to. And so her life was ended. Theo Bohr was a um, strong advocate of euthanasia in the Netherlands, um, but when the issue was considered before Parliament in the UK last year, he testified that it was a huge mistake and that the slippery slope was very real. So let's just even look at that. We started with a requirement for terminal illness to a current situation in which there's no diagnosis of all. We required physical suffering. Now we move to depression and existential suffering, if even that. We went from adults only to children. We went from a conscious patient to the unconscious, from the competent to the incompetent, from the consenting patient to those without consent for the purpose of patient autonomy. Now by the choice of the physician and solely for the benefit of the patient and now for the benefit of society through organ donation. The slippery slope isn't just a hypothetical, it's very real. The last major argument against is what I refer to as the justice argument. When New York was first considering the issue of assisted suicide in 1994, their task force on life and the law made this observation that no matter how carefully any guidelines are framed, assisted suicide and euthanasia will be practiced through the prism of social inequality and bias that characterizes the delivery of service in all segments of our society, including health care. The practices will pose the greatest risk to those who are poor, elderly, members of a minority group, or without access to good medical care. We know very clearly that many disability rights groups strongly oppose assisted suicide, and many are listed here. As a member of Not Dead Yet, um, summarized in a society that prizes physical ability and stigmatizes impairments, it's no surprise that previously able-bodied people may tend to equate disability with loss of dignity. This reflects the prevalent but insulting societal judgment the people who deal with incontinence and other losses in bodily function are lacking dignity. People with disabilities are concerned that these psychosocial disability-related factors have become widely accepted as sufficient justification for assisted suicide. In the recent Pew study, it was interesting to see that among those who disapproved of laws to allow assisted suicide, um, it was the majority of Hispanic and African-American populations who were still against it. And understandably, as devalued minorities in our, in our country who often have been discriminated against in access to medical procedures, we're already starting with a concern of not having a significant amount of trust in the healthcare system. And now you want to introduce this um, I think that, again, we need to be sensitive to these concerns. But let me just take you to the horse's mouth, Derry Comfrey. Um, <clears throat> in uh, the work Freedom to Die, People, Politics, and the Right to Die Movement, 
He said that physician-assisted suicide will ultimately be accepted as an important method of cost containment. Economics is the unspoken argument. Greedy geezers are putting a strain on the healthcare system that will only increase and cannot be sustained. Economics, not the quest for broadened individual liberties or increased autonomy, will drive assisted suicide to the plateau of acceptable practice. We've all heard these projections, which I don't doubt are uh, quite likely that uh, Social Security and Medicare are um, you know, running out of money. And sooner the systems are going to collapse. And when you recognize that a substantial percentage, an increasing percentage over time, of the number of individuals in Washington State and in Oregon who have recently requested the prescription for a lethal overdose are folks who are on Medicare and Medicaid or other government insurance policies only. So the conflict is only going to increase. And as Dr. William Toffler summed it up, supporters claim assisted suicide gives patients a choice, but what sort of a choice is it when life is expensive but death is free? And to illustrate the existing problem, Ira Bayak, who is uh, a self-confessed progressive in all ways except in this particular issue, he was the president of one of the most prominent palliative care societies, um, wrote about the case of Barbara Wagner in 2008 who needed lung cancer, or chemotherapy for lung cancer. The Oregon Health Plan refused to authorize coverage for her treatment, um, but did say that they would certainly pay for the lethal overdose prescription. Um, Another case, now that California is online, involved um, uh, Mrs. Stephanie Packer, who suffered from scleroderma, um, a connective tissue disorder that was specifically affecting her lungs, so that she's having trouble breathing and requires, I don't know if you can see her nasal cannula, but she requires ongoing oxygen in order to breathe, but otherwise is trying to stay very active, raise her kids, and so on. And she was just confronted within a few days of the California program for assisted suicide becoming legal that um, coverage for an expensive treatment that would help, hopefully help her scleroderma and which had once been promised would be covered was no longer covered. And when she called in to respond to the letter denying her coverage, the person on the other end of the phone said, but look up, your copay for a lethal overdose is only going to be $1.80. A group of physicians in Canada who are opposing euthanasia summed it up this way. Those who promote physician-assisted dying presume that everyone is in a position to make a free and rational decision to die. A prescription which would require a world where there are no constraints, no pressures, no fears, no anxiety, no depression, where everyone is honest and altruistic at all times, where communication is faultless and fully understood by everyone, where healthcare resources are abundant and immediately accessible for all, where those who are sick and aging are constantly surrounded by loving and caring families, where people with disabilities have perfect access to employment, housing, and social resources. Well, we do not live 
in that world. Theologian Karl Barth made this observation and is one who lived through uh, many of the atrocities of the 20th century. He said, no community, whether family, village, or state, is really strong if it will not carry its weak and even its weakest members. They belong to it no less than the strong and the quiet work of their maintenance and care, which might seem useless on a superficial view, is perhaps more effective than common labor, culture, or historical conflict in knitting it closely and securely together. On the other hand, a community which regards and treats its weak as a hindrance and even proceeds to their extermination is on the verge of collapse. The final thought I will leave with you on a positive note comes from Dame Cecily Saunders, who uh, was the um, creator of the British hospice movement and I think sums up nicely what we should be doing in health care. You matter because you're you. You matter to the last moment of your life. And we will do all we can, not only to help you die peacefully, but also to live until you die. And I thank you very much for your attention and patience.